Isaiah has been prophesying about a great deliverance that was about to occur. Isaiah has been picturing a time when God was going to come and and redeem his people. He is picturing a time when good news is going to be spread of salvation, of peace, of joy. A declaration that God now reigns and has continued to reign, but it's going to be observed and seen. As peoples will come to Zion and Zion will be redeemed and the Lord will comfort his people. And his people will belong to him. That God's arm of salvation and God's powerful might will be seen across the earth. And that salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. And one of the questions that would have to arise on that day is, how is that going to happen? How is God going to redeem his people? How is God going to bring peace to people who are in sin and separated from God? How is God going to bring them joy and bring them salvation? How can it be that we could be reconciled to him and now belong as his people yet one more time, even though we violated his laws? And Isaiah is going to present a surprising answer as he now enters into the fourth servant song, which is recorded for us in Isaiah 52 and 53. In Isaiah 52, he introduces now the servant. It is the fourth time that he has spoken of this servant. He has three servants that he observes throughout this this prophecy, but he has spoken of the Messiah, the Christ who's going to come. And he's described him as his servant who's going to accomplish his will and is going to bring radical change for his people. And so he's going to enter into the pinnacle of great and the greatest details about who this servant will be and what he's going to do. You'll notice in chapter 52 of Isaiah and verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The first picture that we're going to notice is the first sentence says that he's going to act wisely. And it's not the point that he, as the Messiah, the Christ, is going to just simply possess wisdom. It means more than that, is that he has wisdom, he acts wisely such that he will succeed. When my servant comes, there's going to be no thwarting of the task. He will succeed in what he is tasked to do. He is going to accomplish it. Remember the last servant song talked about, you would see salvation come. And it was going to be that he would be successful in that, even though it would appear to others that is a failure, that his labor has been in vain. He will be vindicated by his God. He will be vindicated by the Lord. And all will see the salvation of God. And so here it is pictured again. My servant will come and he will succeed at the task that he's going to do. His success is going to be so great that you'll notice there is a threefold exaltation that is described. He will be high, he will be lifted up, and he will be exalted. Threefold exaltation. And you think about that for a minute. When God does things in threes, usually that is a superlative. Like when you have everybody in the throne room saying, holy, holy, holy. That's not just, you know, we didn't know what else to say. That's a superlative. 
He is the holiest. There's none holier than Him. It is the, the top. It is the most. It is the supreme. And it's the same idea here with a threefold exaltation. He's not just going to be slightly exalted. Some of your translations even read, and He is greatly exalted. That greatly is not there, but the threefold exaltation demands it. It is going to be a supreme exaltation. My servant will come. He will succeed. He will do the task that is given to him. And he will be exalted. He will be high and lifted up. Which is what the scriptures speak about over and over again. As they would, the apostles would preach this gospel message. You have like the apostle Peter when he preaches that first sermon. And he says there in Acts 2, This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Here is Peter saying, God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. And he sat down at the right hand of God and took that rightful place. Paul would say the same thing in Philippians 2 after describing the cross and in describing his obedience to the point of death. He then turns around and says, and therefore he was highly exalted and given a name that is above every name so that every knee will bow. Here's the picture of Isaiah saying it. My servant's going to come. He's going to succeed. He will act wisely and he will be greatly exalted as he accomplishes his task. Which leads then I think to what makes the next sentence so strange. You would almost envision now we're going to read about the triumphal march of this great servant who's going to succeed and he will act wisely and be exalted and he's going to have the parade and it's all going to go well for him. And yet the next words then, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So that he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. He begins by now turning and saying, there's going to be astonishment. But in our language, when we speak of being astonished at something, you, you take that kind of positively or negatively. You know, we'll use that like, I am astonished the Dolphins came back and won the game. You know, that, that's a positive thing. We read it and we can say it like that. That's not what he means, though. and that's, It's a negative word. When he speaks of it being astonished, there's not a positive inclination to this. And that's why some translations are willing to rightly go and say appalled, because it is a negative idea of astonishment. Yes, they are astonished, but they're not astonished like they're amazed, like, ooh, isn't that neat? Isn't that amazing? We like that. No, it's an astonishment like they are appalled. It is a negative word. It is a, a very visceral kind of, ugh, we are appalled at that. We do not like that. It is not pleasing to us at all. And the text tells us there are two reasons 
why they are appalled and astonished at the servant. The first one is pretty shocking. When you say, why is this the case? Why would you be appalled at him? He's successful. He's high and lifted up and greatly exalted. What is it that you are now going to be appalled at him, to be astonished in this negative way? The first is in a parenthetical there in verse 14. And it says that they are appalled by his appearance. I think the Holman Christian Standard does a really good job with this phrase. It is a little bit challenging in the ESV New American Standard where it's a very word for word and it kind of is a little bit difficult to grasp. But I think the Holman Christian Standard rounds it out well when it puts it this way. His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. That is the functional translation of what this is saying. But it says there, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. It's easy to read that and kind of go, okay, yeah. So marred that it is beyond human semblance. That's why the one says, doesn't even look human. His form beyond that of the children of mankind, his form not even of a human. When I was 18, I decided against my will to come down with the chicken pox. Man, was I sick. I missed about a month and a half of my senior year having the chicken pox so severely. And I remember looking in the mirror on some of those days and I grasped a little bit of the idea of marred beyond human semblance. The chicken pox, I did not recognize my face anymore. I remember crying in the mirror going, I don't even, I can't even recognize me anymore. This is the imagery you're supposed to be cast as Isaiah says, He's marred beyond human semblance. He doesn't look human anymore by what he's going to experience. After describing the success of the servant who will be highly exalted, he turns around and says, and he's going to be marred beyond that what we would even recognize. A severity of his appearance is going to happen. That is hard for us to grasp, I think. Because what we read about in the scriptures are not things that happen in our society today. When it talks about Jesus going and being scourged, we don't witness that. We don't see what that looks like. The severity of what that was and what that looked like is not before our eyes. The severity of it is so great, Roman citizens were not allowed to be subject to it. It was only for those who were not Romans. It was for the lowest of low people, the dirt of the earth. They would be scourged. They would experience this kind of punishment. And I think one of the other reasons why it's so difficult to appreciate it is because of the way the scriptures handle it. You get a sentence like that, and that's it. Matthew 27, 26, speaking of Pilate, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And we just kind of go, well, okay, he got scourged. 
Isaiah is painting a shocking picture, an appalling picture, of the severity of what Jesus was about to endure in terms of the scourging and in terms of the cross. I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time detailing that. I will just read a very short paragraph. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament as relating it from what Josephus and Eusebius saw as uh, church fathers and seen living at a time when there was a scourging. It just simply made the point. The whip was a dead, dreaded flagellum made by plated pieces of bone or lead in leather thongs. The victim was stripped and tied to a post. Severe flogging not only reduced the flesh to a bloody pulp, but could open up the body until the bones were visible and the entrails exposed. Flogging as an independent punishment frequently ended in death. I was reading Eusebius said, He witnessed that for himself, that you could see the bones and see the insides of him as a person was being flogged. Not speaking of Jesus, just speaking of an individual who was being flogged in that day. Isaiah is driving at a punishment, a pain, a horror of suffering that is going to be experienced by the servant. That he is going to go through something so severe, so shocking, so so dramatic that Isaiah could use words. His appearance was so marred beyond that of human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When we read the gospel accounts, we recognize that most people did carry their own cross to their crucifixion. That was quite normal. And please remember that Jesus is physically unable to do that. What Jesus experiences before the crucifixion is quite horrific. That renders him unable to even carry his cross beam to his own crucifixion. And even Isaiah in just some brevity tries to remind us of this shocking event. What is amazing then about this is Isaiah is picturing the success of the servant who would be highly exalted. And yet it is the suffering of the servant that brings about the success. That's what's so shocking about these servant songs. Four times it's been pictured, and this one in the greatest of detail. That the servant's going to come and he's going to succeed and do his work, and yet the success comes through suffering. The success that comes through the horror of the cross. And it's amazing that Jesus himself would combine those two ideas together, even in his own words. John 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Notice the success. The ruler is cast out. Now is the time the ruler of this world is cast out. We're dealing with Satan. Satan is being cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Notice the success again. I'm going to draw all people to myself. And yet, what's the means of this success? He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. As he says, he's going to be lifted up on the cross. He's going to be lifted up from the earth. 
the time together of accomplishing the task of the Lord and being successful and exalted is matched with amazing suffering and to be killed on the cross. So this was the first picture that Isaiah gives. Many were appalled and astonished at you because of what you were going to endure. And we see the scriptures identify that, that the suffering servant would be something that would cause people to negatively react to Christ. That this is not a picture of what we expect a king to do or be. This doesn't look like a victorious king as he is scourged and hung on a cross. And yet Jesus says that's exactly what it is. In his crucifixion, he is succeeding in drawing all people to himself. The second astonishment is found in the work that he's accomplishing in verse 15. It says that he will sprinkle many nations. We'll we'll talk about that in just, just a moment. Notice it also says in sprinkling the many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And so we're given another interesting picture, an appalling negative statement about what he is going to do. And so it says that what will happen is the kings will be astonished. Well, why will kings be astonished? Why would their mouths be shut? What is going to happen at that? And verse 15 gives the answer for that which has not been told them. They see that's the explanation. You'll sprinkle many nations. Kings shut their mouths because of them. Well, what's the problem? Why? Why? What's going on? Because that which has not been told them, these kings, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. That's the thing that causes it. It is so interesting that the Apostle Paul uses that phrase and speaks of it about the Gentiles. And he says to them, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring to the Gentiles obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And he quotes Isaiah 52. Here he says, here's what's happening. The sprinkling of the nations is going to cause the Gentiles to enter into a relationship. And Paul uses that and says, my goal is not to preach where it's already been preached. I want to go to the Gentiles. I want to go where it hasn't been preached. And this then is going to become appalling news to them. This is going to be something that would be a stumbling block. That the message of salvation would go to the ends of the earth. That all peoples could come in and belong to Christ. In fact... That is the essence of what it means when it says that there's going to be the sprinkling of the nation. Because it is a reference then to cleansing and to covenant. Now you might have a a footnote in your Bible that says it could also mean startle. And I'm going to go against that and for one simple reason. Simply because it requires an amending of the text. 
And I'm not a fan of amending the text, so to say that's what it is. Even though the word sprinkle is difficult in trying to understand how it fits and startle would make more sense. And I think that's why there's the amending. We're going to go with sprinkle. But I'm going to show you why sprinkling makes a lot of sense. Sprinkling will work. If you keep your hand here, I can't put... Actually, I did put it all on the screen. Never mind. Uh, I decided this morning, you know, I'm going to throw all this on the screen. It's Hebrews 9, verse 13 through 22. But you want to turn and look in your Bibles. But I want you to observe as we read this. In speaking of sprinkling, the writer of Hebrews combines two concepts. He combines how sprinkling works for cleansing, but how that also works for covenant, all at the exact same time. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Just notice what's being spoken of here. He says, now, if you had under the old covenant, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, notice that caused the sanctification of the flesh. Well, how much more with the blood of Christ is that going to purify the conscience? We have cleansing with sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Therefore, next sentence, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant for will where a will is involved. The death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect as law a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now watch, we're going to move back to sprinkling again. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I just want you to see the writer of Hebrews grasp the idea when sprinkling occurs, there's cleansing and covenant. Cleansing, covenant. And that's what is happening here in Isaiah. Isaiah says they're going to be appalled. Here is my servant. He's going to come. He's going to be successful. He will be highly exalted, but they are going to be appalled at his suffering. They will be appalled at the way that he does it. And then they're going to be appalled at the work that is accomplished through it. The effect of it. That is the Gentiles are going to be purified and brought into covenant. That's how Paul quotes that very line. He turns around and says, we're preaching the message to the Gentiles so that they can be forgiven, they can be cleansed, and also belong to this covenant. And if you think about all that we've been observing in the book of Romans, this is the problem that exists for Israel, is that you are allowing Gentiles to come into covenant relationship with God and receive the equal blessings. 
And Isaiah has predicted that. He's predicted it in all of these psalms about salvation to the ends of the earth. And here he does it again. Notice how the end of verse 50, of chapter 52 describes that. For that which they have not been told. These are the outsiders. These are the Gentiles. They don't have God's promises. They don't have God's message. They don't have God's oracles. They don't have God's law. That which they have not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Isaiah predicts the entrance of the Gentiles, the entrance of the outsiders, and says this becomes appalling to the many of verse 14. Many are astonished at you. Why? We see the suffering and we see what the suffering accomplished. The sprinkling of many nations so that the kings now shut their mouths and the world now can come to Christ. And many are appalled at that. Which is now what the next verse drives at. Verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is not a question desiring to know the answer. This is not Isaiah going, now I wonder who's going to hear this message. This is so fascinating that we have a servant who is going to be exalted and succeed and yet he's going to suffer. And now I'm really wondering who's going to uh, believe it. That's not what that means. It is implying the fact that there is a rejection, that Israel has heard this, but they have not believed. Notice there in verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, you go back to chapter 52 of Isaiah and notice what verse 10 says. Isaiah 52 verse 10. Here's what God promised was going to happen. God says the Lord is going to bear his holy arm to who? Everybody. All the nations. Everybody's going to see the salvation of our God. Everybody's going to see the power of the arm of the Lord. And now the question is then asked in a rhetorical way by Isaiah. Well, who then has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To you it has. You have seen the arm of the Lord. You have seen the salvation of your God. You have seen it through the servant coming and suffering for sins and dying on the cross. And who then is going to believe this message? Who is going to obey it? Who is going to submit to it? And the answer that is resounding out of Isaiah is not many. Really, the implication is no one. In fact, notice this is exactly how Paul used it in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verse 16 in describing how Israel has separated itself from God. He says in speaking of them, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Here is Paul using Isaiah 53 one and says, Isaiah said that the people would reject. And that's exactly what's happening. By the way, do you remember that Jesus said the exact same thing? Listen to how it fits exactly what Isaiah prophesied. John Joel, verse 36, when Jesus had said all these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Here is John making the note. Jesus performed all of these signs and wonders before them. He did so many signs before them, and yet they do not believe. Here is Isaiah saying, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Salvation has finally come. The declaration of peace, the declaration of hope, the declaration of redemption, the declaration of salvation has arrived. And all the signs and wonders accompanied that Jesus performing signs to prove who he was. And it says they did not believe, just like Isaiah said. Isaiah said the arm of the Lord would be revealed and people wouldn't believe it. And Jesus comes along and shows himself to be the son of God. And proves who he is, not just merely in look at all the miracles. But when you focus your attention to the cross. When you put your eyes right there and see an amazing love that God has for all of his people. That God would care so deeply for sinners like you and me. That even though people would reject. That people would take him and haul him off and have him scourged. That people would take nails and throw it through his hands and feet. And that they would lift him up on a cross. And they would mock him as some kind of king. That they would revile him. And that they would spit upon him. And that Jesus would allow all that. Because he would succeed in his task of drawing all people to himself. Jesus saving the world and bringing peace so that we can be redeemed, that we can be reconciled to God, that we can belong to him again, though our sin had separated us, could only happen through the devastating suffering of the cross. And yet, even with the proclamation of that message, in the days of Jesus and in the days of Paul, People still did not believe. They continued to reject him. Appalled by him. And appalled by his message. I want to just conclude. Really just with one consideration for you. Is that we will believe the astonishing message of Christ. And that our attention will be focused so directly at the cross. And that when we see the cross, that we will see Jesus succeeding through the suffering of the cross. This is how Jesus described it. That he was being glorified 
when he was lifted up from the earth. He describes it in terms of this is the work of God so much that his final words would be, it is done. It is finished. I've completed the task that you have given to me. It required the cross, the suffering servant who would give his life for the sins of many. Success through suffering. Success through sacrifice. What is it that we are choosing not to sacrifice for the cause of Christ today? Jesus left us the example that we give, we, we sacrifice, we lessen ourselves, we humble ourselves, we lower ourselves, we give ourselves away. Because that's what it means to succeed in Christ. We looked a little bit at that this morning in Romans 12. It is the sacrifice of self. Jesus observes that and recognizes I am accomplishing the task that God has given me to do. And it is the giving away of self. And how can it be that as humans we so easily and so often refuse to make sacrifices for Christ? We refuse to give everything. We refuse to forfeit our idols. We refuse to forfeit our sins. We refuse to give up our comforts or ease or whatever we think is so necessary or needed for our physical comfort or joy. How can we look at the cross and then make any calculation of life in terms of my comfort, in terms of what feels good for me? How can I look at the servant whose appearance was so marred beyond human semblance? And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then say, well, that's asking too much of me to give up what I want to do. May the cross move us to sacrifice it all. To give up whatever it is that is keeping us from full service of him. To give up whatever it is. That is holding you back of serving your God who loves you so much that he died in the most wrenching of painful ways for your salvation. What are you saying back to the Father that you are unwilling to forfeit? Because he loves you so much, he showed you his sacrifice for you. Will you turn away from your sins today? And believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins. Will you love the Lord Jesus for what He has done for you and for me? You see this expression of love that to succeed through sacrifice, to succeed through His death, 
so that we could be redeemed. And will we give up all? Will we deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Him? Will we serve Him fully, love Him fully? Will you rip those idols and sins out of your life? Can we help you do that? Can we encourage you to do that? We give you the strength to do that. We'll pray for you in your efforts in doing that. But even more importantly, to take your sins before God and find forgiveness. That if you're not a Christian, you need repentance and you need to confess your sins to Him and you need to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. And you need to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to submit your life to Him to be a child of His. You need to do that today. If you are a Christian and you have not been sacrificed and you have not been giving for Christ, will you make the change today? Will you repent of that today? And love the suffering servant and follow him completely. Will you respond to the invitation? Will you come while we stand and while we sing?